It's a bonus episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. My name is Brian. Coming up, we have some outtakes from our Millie Vanilli episode. But first, the mailbag lit up once we posted that episode with uh, a lot of you reminding us of some Millie Vanilli pop cultural references that we didn't get to or didn't mention at all or maybe didn't know about. And uh, we appreciate that. And you uncovered some fun stuff. So we're going to mention a few of those. We'll start with something we did mention, but we didn't play on the show uh, we went back and excavated the clip. It's in the show notes. That would be the Super Mario Brothers 3 cartoon featuring the real voices of Millie Vanilli as characters in a very complicated plot. Now, I watched a chunk of this episode because I was curious, and it's crazy and bizarre. And also, the timing of this is really interesting. So it actually airs the very end of October of 1990. And then the news comes out where Frank Farian goes and says, listen, this was all fake. That happens like midway through November. So this is only about two, two and a half weeks before. But you'll notice if you do go and watch the clip that the joke is that Millie Vanilli, there's a performance where they're actually playing in front of a stadium. Mario and Luigi and Princess Peach, who's like their super fan, are all in the audience. And they're moving their mouths and no words are coming out. And so there's clearly some jokes here that are, have, and this is what we talked about on the episode that like it got to a point, like a boiling point where like it was a constant joke that they didn't really perform. And so Frank Farian was just like, let's cut our losses and I'm just going to go ahead and come clean about it. Um, so it was already out there in the pop culture, but there was still already this affection that still existed for them enough to put them on this car, this kid's cartoon in this crazy subplot about them being kidnapped by Koopa or one of Koopa's underlings for a a daughter lizard who wants to keep them for her own and she has some magical powers and she turns them into accountants uh, and then says she's going to continue to keep them as accountants unless they perform for her. It's a it's very strange. Uh, here's a little clip. If you don't do a concert just for me, I will turn you into Beatles. Great. Who wants to be a band from the 60s? Better yet, I'll turn you into Fatouis. Hmm. Never heard of them. Do they have an album? Look, Ms. Reptile, we can't do the concert for you. We don't have the backup band. Then you'll just have to stay accountants until you get one. If we don't change those two accountants back to Millie Vanilli, I'll never hear my favorite music again. Don't worry, Princess. We'll get in there and save Rob and Fab from Cootie Pop. We will? We will. Sheesh. How? Hmm, how? You heard what Fab said. They need a backup band to give Cootie Pie her concert. Gotcha, Mario. It's time to rock and roll. Uh, that one's fun. Uh, we got a letter from Emil. We are the story guys. Uh, at gmail.com if you want to get involved in the show. Emil wrote us there and said, hey, you guys didn't mention the hilarious, uh, very inappropriate scene regarding Millie Vanilli and specifically Rob in Bruno. I had not seen that. I've seen a lot of Sasha Baron Cohen. I uh, went and found myself a copy, and wow, it is something else. I'm going to let you just hear the beginning of it. And if you want to see the visual gag that then happens for an extremely long period of time um, around Bruno kissing the ghost of Rob and then doing other things with the ghost of Rob, um, you can go check that out on your own. Also through that in the show notes. But yes, um, this is this is pretty funny. 
Ich decided to seek advice from the wisest guy I'd ever known. I want to speak to Millie from the pop dance group Millie und Vanille. Is he in heaven? And if so, is he in the VIP section there? He says he's in a place with green trees and flowers. And finally, Leia dug this up for us. Thank you, Leia. This I had not seen. I'm having a little trouble figuring out where, what country this aired in because I don't think it aired in America. But there is a commercial for KFC. They hired Fab, and this was somewhat recently, in the last, I don't know, five to ten years, to sing their jingle. And then they shot like this three-minute documentary-style commercial talking about how, where Fab says that he's found his real self, and so now he's using his real voice to talk about real chicken. Um, I know a little bit about the inside of KFC. I've, I, On the record, I will say that I, I once interviewed to work in the department that would have been a part of this sort of stuff, so I know the sort of creativity uh, with which they do these things, and they really think outside of the box, and they're a lot of fun. This one is... It's funny because if you read the YouTube comments, people are like, I got chills. This was amazing. This is so thoughtful. And I mean, like people really got into this and it's a pretty compelling piece of film. It's again, like three minutes. I'll also throw it in the show notes. So check it out too. But here's, here's the clip where you actually hear Fab's real voice. My hair is a mess, man. Blame it on the rain. <laughs> because I found the real me again. Those guys at KFC asked me to sing about their real chicken. I think that's cool, right? <laughs> to be real is the essence of life, my brother. All right, man, let's do this. Chicken one, two, chicken one, two. Okay. Be, <clears throat> be real and enjoy. 100% real chicken KFC is finger licking good yes, oh, come on, give me boom. Again, thanks for everybody uh, sending us notes and always being involved in the show. Uh, it's really great. We love it. Facebook is an easy place to do that. Just look for the story, guys. Um, you can leave reviews on any platform where you download the show. And please email us. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You help drive the car. You are the engine. And we, um, we do this for you guys, and we love doing it. So thank you so much. Uh, now, I do have some outtakes from our original recording session I had compiled a bunch of extra research that I ended up cutting. Now, this doesn't happen tons, but sometimes I get down a wormhole and think the episode's going to go one way. So basically, he had done all this research about Eurodance um, and the origins of that because it was so interesting to me that we got... We somehow... Frank Farian got himself from the disco era to this thing in the 90s. And I was like, what, what's the connecting string between disco and Eurodance? And, and there's a very, very specific route um and it really is eurodance is an offshoot of disco over a couple of decades so i explain that here this is some outtake audio from our millie vanilli recording session of murdoch and i talking about that so check it out and we'll see you next time keep telling stories
You know where disco, the birthplace of disco is? Philadelphia. Yeah, dude, you're so damn good at this. Philadelphia and New York City, late 60s, early 70s, mostly among immigrant populations, Italian and Latinx and black Americans. And you could argue that it is so reaction against what 60s counterculture has done specifically to music because 60s counterculture has taken music and made it political and aggressive and used it as a tool, which is yeah. which is great and has its place. But in some and also, opi- you have that dude rock yeah. that's in there, too. You have Black Oak, Arkansas, yeah, and, and yeah. Steppenwolf, and sure. Kiss, and uh-huh. all that stuff. So, in some opinions... Now, Kiss is, Kiss is a little bit more like Let's Get Blitzed and Dance, right? In a rock and roll form. But... A lot of that has left music otherwise in the in the countercultural movement. Now it's more serious and somber. And so disco develops not just as a genre, but as a physical space, a place to go, get blitzed, and dance at night. Now have fun. I don't have to explain disco too technically, I wouldn't imagine, but in order to get us all the way to Eurodance, I will point out some technical features. And those are the four and the four beats and syncopated bass lines. In most cases, you like that? It... That was great. And lyrics about sex and drugs and lots of sex and drugs are partaken by many disco fans while they're listening to these musics and the music and lyrics about sex and drugs. Or or it's there there there's never disco songs that are about like clinical depression. Like disco songs <laughs> right, are not right, right, right. disco songs are about like all right and it's coming on we got to get right back where we started from. Like yeah, for sure. Lots of horns, lots of horns. Yeah, generically happy. Now, this spreads to the UK and across parts of the world. And you end up with lots of American acts. But other places jump in, too. There's Bacara in Spanish, uh, in Spain. And, of course, there's ABBA from Sweden. Yep. But with every cultural movement, the pendulum swings back. And at the end of the 70s, it starts getting really made fun of and denigrated. And then there's this event that happens. Have you heard about the, do you know the day the disco died? Uh, yeah, dude, I've watched the video. <laughs> it's July 12th, 1979. Of course, we know about this partly because it's radio history, and we're radio guys, old radio guys. Yeah. Two dumbass radio DJs do a stunt, and they advertise Disco Demolition Night, which is an anti-disco demonstration, which I can totally understand what this was like in the boardroom at the radio station or in the in the marketing meeting where they were like, oh, yeah. bro, here's what we do, man. Screw disco, man. Let's have disco demo night. Oh, that's funny, Chuck. And so that's what happens. They go to Comiskey Park in Chicago. There's a doubleheader. And in between the two games, these morons explode some vinyl disco in center field. And, and listen... I don't know shit about baseball. Like, I get it. Like, I understand the rules. Like, I don't watch baseball. Like, I'm one of those guys. I don't watch sports that much. Like, it's super long. But I've been to Comiskey Park before, and I couldn't imagine seeing a doubleheader, and that's a thing in the middle of it. Like, in the middle of the games. <laughs> that someone comes out and goes, hey, everybody, what's going on? We're going to burn these goddamn disco records to the ground. <laughs> Like, I can't imagine that's a thing, but I guess in 79, that was a thing So that you could do. I mean, as you can imagine, as you just sort of pointed out, the energy gets real dark and weird, right? And so people lose their minds and riot. They tear out seats out of Comiskey Park. They mess up wow. the turf. The White Sox have to forfeit the second game. <laughs> oh, I didn't know about this at yeah. all. Wow. 
And disco doesn't have a lot of legs after that. It, it does effectively kill it. But I specifically bring up Disco Demolition Night because it's it happened in Chicago, which location is important for this story because things like this don't die. They morph, and what starts to happen in Chicago, the death place of disco, is another club scene takes root. And this one features Chicago club DJs who take these old disco records and start messing with them. They put them at 115 beats per minute. They accentuate the bass line. They make them more mechanical. And they create what becomes known as house music. Oh, wow. This is fun. By the mid-80s, house music starts to infiltrate pop music. For instance, Madonna Vogue. That's a mainstream example of the house music sound. You'll find some of this in Janet Jackson records. Of course, Kylie Minogue capitalizes on it. And this spreads across the country and eventually across the world to scenes like London, England, and Frankfurt, Germany. And it is there in Germany by the late 80s that a guy named Tassif Alam, who had seen what had happened in Chicago with underground clubs and the invention of house music, starts a party scene of his own that he wants to emulate what happened in Chi-Town. And it grows and it grows and it eventually gives birth to a specific spin on house music. And the DJs in this scene start taking house music and then adding rap verses and soul choruses, big hooks. And they start manipulating the sound with computer technology. And that is the birth of Eurodance. Now, do you know the DJ duo who actually breaks the new genre and gets credit for being its creators? They actually have a big pop hit in the early 90s in America. Uh, is it Mark and Brian? Is it Rick Dees? It's these, is it it's, Bubba the Love Sponge? It's Snap. These, oh, it's Snap. It's Snap. It's these two German dudes yeah. who create this song called The Power. Yeah. I got the power! And that song yeah. births Eurodance and then basically runs the room in pop radio for the next five years or so in America. And that after snap, so snap is like 91. And then after snap, you get culture beat and then you get Hathaway and then you get La Bouche and La Click and all these Frank Farian guys. It's an amazing thing to think about because I've never put together how you get from Casey and the sunshine band to what is love? Like, you know, it's there's DNA. Yeah. But yeah, that's a really great way of is a great way of explaining the the journey that that those genres made, how they were birthed, you know, how, how they were birthed eventually, like how they grew. There you go. That's your quick primer on Eurodance. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. 